Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your takes, your questions, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other things. This is a live mailbag, how I, uh, how I like to do them recently, and uh, of course, I have uh, I've not been doing YouTube for, uh, <laughs> for the US Open until this point because I have been at the tournament every single day working for US Open Radio. So I will begin uh, just by explaining to you guys exactly what I've been up to. It'll give uh, also time for people to file into the stream. Um, and then I will get to your comments on uh, the YouTube community tab and my Twitter, which is at Gil underscore gross. So basically what I was doing is I was a court reporter for US Open Radio, which means that there would be a main match that the the commentators and an analyst, right, a lead and an analyst would do ball by ball commentary. Um, I would be on courts that they weren't focusing their ball-by-ball -ball commentary on. They would send it out to me, and I would give a synopsis of what was happening in the match that I was watching. So as a result, in the first, especially the first two rounds of the tournament, uh, I generally wasn't on Ash, where they were focusing their commentary. Sometimes I wasn't even on Armstrong, but I was on the outer courts, and a lot of the time bouncing around from match to match to match, looking for what was interesting happening around the grounds and communicating that. Now, in the uh, recent couple days, I was on Ash a lot more as most of the grounds became juniors and doubles. And while I kept tabs on that, I was on Ash a lot, especially at night. Uh, and as a result, I was kind of the third member of the broadcast crew and I was courtside and uh, look it was unbelievable to be there um, a, a real a dream come true um, and such a blast experience of a lifetime really just to, to be at the open every day to see these matches up close I interviewed a couple players as well for uh, for our podcast courtside um, you know I talked to I talked to Brooksby right before he played Djokovic that was a highlight um, I talked to, to Riley Opelka. I talked to Coco Goff and, um, and Katie McNally um, yesterday, uh, last night. So really, uh, I, I had a lot of fun. It was not traditional. It was not a traditional way to consume the tournament for me, of course, but I hope to be there uh, for many, many years to come. Now, I also drastically underestimated the time commitment and I just I thought I might have time to make some videos and it just wasn't even I wasn't even really close to having the time to uh to make some videos because I was I was pretty much either sleeping or at the tournament and the <laughs> the matches were so good that every night was so late um and as a result it was generally like go to sleep 2 a.m wake up 11 a.m., get to site, 12.31, work starting at 3 with, with lunch, you know, somewhere, you know, on site in between that 1 and the 3. So that was generally my schedule. There just wasn't any time. Uh, so it is good to be back. I'm excited to get into things. I'm excited to share with you uh, some of my takes that I've had. I also was 
a little bit less opinionated on Twitter because I just had to wear a different hat, uh, just working for the tournament and everything. So I, I'm excited to, to talk about some of my opinions on some of the things that's happened. It has been, as I just mentioned, such an incredible tournament. And I just want to start with that before I get to the comments. Um, all my life, I went to U.S. Open night sessions growing up as a kid. I, I, you know, I grew up uh, 40, 40 to 50 minutes north of Flushing, Queens, uh, where the U.S. Open is held. So all my life, I was going to these night sessions. And for the most part, throughout my entire childhood, if you went to a night session, the men's match would be one of the big four. It was almost a lock. Now, normally, maybe one night they would have an American. And a lot of the time it was like, okay, one night it would be Isner. But other than that, and I was never at one of those nights, other than that, it was Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or Murray. I never saw a good match. I really didn't. Now, there were points, there were years that I went to semifinals. I was at uh, the first match I ever went to in my life was the 2009 U.S. Open final, Federer Del Potro. Uh, so it's not like I never saw good matches at the Open, but whenever I went to a night session in Arthur Ashe Stadium, I never saw a good men's match. I literally, I have zero memories of a good men's match. I only, you would go and it would be a blowout every single time that I went. <laughs> zero, zero good matches. I think I saw Dennis Istman take a set off Nadal once, and that was like the only time I saw a, a, one of the big four struggle uh, on an Arthur Ashe night session. That is to say that this was a strange U.S. Open, a different U.S. Open, and a U.S. Open that was very exciting because the matches were actually really competitive from top to bottom. Ashe had amazing matches, like on such a consistent basis. So the storyline coming into the U.S. Open was about all the players that were not going to be playing. And it was just interesting to experience a tournament without them. At the end of the day, I don't want to give any credence to this kind of notion. And by the way, I get this in my comments a lot, that like tennis is going to die when the big three are gone. And uh, believe me, I, I read a lot of comments that say that. And I generally just ignore that because I think it's absolutely silly. And we love this sport. And this sport is not going anywhere. And new stars will be born. And that's how this all works. Always. As long as time. That's how this works. Uh, but this just goes to show you a great tennis match is a great tennis match. Uh, period. That's it. And stars will be born. Right now on the, on especially look, I mean, you know, Alcaraz, uh, this tournament, Layla Fernandez, Emirata Kanu, um, you know, massive, massive intrigue, the upsets of, of the top seeds on the women's side, right? The Osaka upset, the Barty upset, um, Anisimova Pliskova, Tsitsipas Alcaraz, Tiafo Rublev was an insane match. Uh, Tiafo Felix was a fantastic match. Anyway, no shortage of incredible tennis. I'm sure I missed some in there. Um, so that's all I wanted to say. It was fascinating to see the result of the Big Four not being there was that I went home at 2 a.m. every morning. 
because it wasn't a three-set, two-hour blowout. It was literally, I used to always say, oh, who are we going to see? Are we going to see Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or Murray crush someone tonight? That is how, that was my mentality when I used to go to the U.S. Open at night. It just wasn't like that this year. All right, let us get to the comments. Thank you, everyone uh, who has tuned in. Appreciate it. Um, good to be back. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the the comments on the on over my shoulder here. If you just give me a second to do that. Layers. Okay, I'm going to start with with the uh, YouTube replies. I've sorted this by top comments. I don't know why it's so like funky, but it kind of is. Um, so let me just start with, um, let's start with Robert Stallings. 15 likes on this comment. Hey Gil, clearly Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and maybe Berrettini are tier one contenders after the big three. Who is the closest to that tier one out of OJ Aliasim, Shapovalov, Sinner, Rublev, Rude, and Hercotch? It's a good question from Robert. Um, you know, nobody has really taken this by the horns, I would say. And there's one question, you know, one way to frame the question is who is closest at this second. And then another way to frame the question is who has a chance of breaking into the tier one in the future. And I think really the the first three names are likely to do it. Uh, where, uh, you know, and then Rublev, I think, has a good chance to do it, but might not. And then Rude and Hercotch, I don't think they'll ever enter the Tier 1 in uh, in men's tennis. But if you're talking right now, I would—it's it's a difficult one. So now Felix and Chapo have, have both made uh, semifinals here in the last two majors— Right now, I would have to say they're both ahead of Sinner. Rublev has been by far the most consistent outside of the majors, but I don't really think it's a coincidence that he's struggled a little bit at the majors. I think that there, I think that there is a, a physicality issue, and there are some weaknesses that need to be sorted out. Not much of a factor on clay. His first serve isn't effective enough on clay. Uh, at Wimbledon, the ball bounces too low for him, and that bothers him, and that's two out of the four majors. So for that reason, I'm going to favor, I think, the Canadians in answering this question a little bit over uh, Rublev. And then if you look at FAA uh, versus Shapovalov, I think that for the most part, right now, I prefer Dennis, as inconsistent as he is, you know, Felix is not a model of consistency himself either. And I know it's been two really good majors back to back for, for Felix. And I know Dennis has not been good at all. Lloyd Harris is a bad matchup for him. He's lost both both times they've met now. Harris is also like three and one against the top ten on hard courts. He's not someone you want to play. But that's a tough loss for Chapo. He was 0-3 after making the Wimbledon semifinal. But at the moment, if you look at the big picture and all surfaces, I think the closest to tier one right now is Denis Shapovalov. Uh and <laughs> I I also want to say before wrapping up this answer. 
is that there appears to be a pretty big gap. Now, Berrettini might be straddling the line. And this is an interesting point because Berrettini actually said in a press conference recently that he he wants to be put in the same sentence as Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Zverev. And he even said, I think they know that I should be. And I don't know about that because all of them are a little bit more complete when it comes to the ability to play at all three levels, which is something that I'm very into. And I, you know, I've never heard anyone, this is kind of a Gilgross term, sorry, right? But like, I haven't heard anyone say this, but in basketball, uh, you want to be able to score at all three levels. You want to be able to shoot from long range, a three-pointer, mid-range, and finish at the rim. You want to score at all three levels. In tennis, I believe you want to be also great at all three levels, but those three levels are are offense, neutral, and defense. And Berrettini is just not as good from neutral and defense as the, the other players. Meanwhile, Zverev and Medvedev, they serve big just like Berrettini. So do I do I think Berrettini is really up there with, with them? Not quite. I, I really don't, g- genuinely. I think that he straddles the line between that Tier 1 and that Tier 2. Okay, let's get to the next one. Um, it is from Kevin and Jackie Gunn. Wow, it's a dual YouTube account. That's very—if you're a couple, that's very sweet, and I, I love that if you're a couple. I assume you're a couple. Well, you, you're both named Gunn, so you are married. Sorry, I'm a little bit, the brain's a little bit fried. Do you think Tsitsipas has hit a brick wall while others close to him are moving over him or through him? And do you think all the negativity affected him in round three? I do think the negativity affected him. And I think the proof that I might offer you in in arguing that it did affect him is this. Tsitsipas is bathroom break and we'll get into this here but uh yeah, there there are comments about the bathroom stuff but Tsitsipas's bathroom break the second one against Alcaraz was about three and a half minutes so clearly there was a change of behavior he heard the noise he processed the noise of course he's gonna hear all that stuff he's on social media in fact he's probably on social media more than most players and the crowd was against him, and he was getting destroyed on social media. And I think that's pretty hard. I really do. Uh, I don't think that's an easy thing to to deal with. But I also think Tsitsipas was never right in the lead-up to this U.S. Open. Of the top four seeds, I said this in the preview, I always felt like he was the most likely to not make the semifinal. And Alcaraz is going to do really big things in the sport. And um, eventually he was going to have his breakout in a major. I just wasn't sure when. And he had a brutal draw, Alcaraz did, in the first round against Cameron Nori. And that's why I thought, okay, well, this probably isn't the one. Nori, top 15 in the race, excellent on hard courts. Someone who I would imagine would be very difficult for a young player. Alcaraz plays lights out in that match, wins in straight sets, has way more winners than unforced errors, a very impressive ratio. And that's when everyone should have taken notice right then and there that it was going to be potentially very difficult for Stefano Tsitsipas. But then you have the U.S. Open courts playing very quick, more on that later as well, and Alcaraz hitting very, very fast. 
and taking advantage of, of some of Tsitsipas' weaknesses, although that's one of those matches. I had major FOMO, um, but I could not watch that because I was working on other courts. Anyway, do I think Tsitsipas has hit a wall? Let me get to the answer. No, I don't. And I think we need to be very, very careful about overreacting to the loss that Tsitsipas suffered at the U.S. Open. Why? Because we need to learn from the past. We cannot make the same mistakes that we made a year ago. Because when Tsitsipas blew six match points to Borna Chorich at last year's round three, the U.S. Open, um, I thought it was going to have long-term effects long-term scarring, damage. And I was not alone. I remember talking to Steve Flink after the U.S. Open, and he completely agreed with me. We were wrong. I was wrong. It, it didn't. He turned the page. So you have to give him credit for that and assume that he can do the same thing once again uh, because he had his best major a month later at Roland Garros held in October. And he made the semifinal there. So there was no long-term effect. So why would this be different? I don't think it will be. And I think that he will move on. You know, we... He had that loss to, to Vavrinka. And I know if you've been following the channel for a while, you've heard me th say this before. But uh, he had that loss to Vavrinka, the five-set loss to Vavrinka, Roland Garros 2019. That lingered. Lingered a very long time. Ruined his whole summer. I don't think he's ever going to let that happen again in his career. He learned from that experience. So let's not overreact. Tsitsipas has taken a step forward this year. He's had a very, very good season. There are still things that are, are struggles for him. And he needs to keep working at figuring them out. I will say the backhand slice is not being ignored. Uh, I watched his practices. Uh portions of two practices and him and Apostolos, I saw them playing cross courts on the backhand side, slice only. And I even saw Apostolos hit him some dead ball feeds with, with Tsitsipas just working on the slice. Unfortunately, the slice still kind of stinks. If I'm not going to sugarcoat it here, it kind of stinks. Just like, look at the match point, the, the match point that Alcaraz won. What was that slice? I mean, it goes, every time he hits a slice, it goes up in the air and it doesn't go straight. It needs to. A slice is not good if it, if the trajectory, the trajectory should not be uh, a loop, like a topspin ground stroke. It should be straight. Um, so it's not working and maybe they need to get outside counseling, which actually does, I think, bring me. Um, to my, I think there's another comment. Yeah. From Reese O'Neill here, uh, does Tsitsipas need to step out of his comfort zone and bring a new coach to take him to the next level in slams? I understand why it's, it's a popular idea that Tsitsipas needs to get away from his father. And I, I do become concerned when they almost have a, almost like bickery dynamic between them. And sometimes I wonder, like, if they're too father-son-like and Stefanos needs to bring on someone who's going to crack the whip on him, who he really fully respects. Because 
I mean, look, every father-son relationship is very, very different. Very different. But I know, for me at least, I don't know if this is something to be proud of, but, like, I'm probably going to respect... Uh, I, I don't want to generalize here. The point is, there's a good thing and a bad thing, right? You need to fully respect your coach. If you're like, you know, if you have kind of like a, oh, like, shut up dad kind of mentality, obviously that's really bad. And I feel like sometimes that's how he's acted towards him. Um, but stability is great. Most of the great ones have stability in their coaching staffs. And obviously Rafa is the, the biggest example. He's really only had two coaches in his career, but Novak has had stability with Marion Vida and Federer has had uh, stability with his physio and his agent uh, throughout his entire career, right? His coaches have changed, but still stability within the team. That's really good. Uh, so you, you definitely want that. So will Tsitsipas reach a point where he needs to move on? I think that will probably come eventually, but right now he still is improving. Let's not act like 2021 has not been a step forward. It, it has. He is, um, he's the wins leader, right? Isn't he the wins leader? I believe so. And he's up to th number three in the world. So things are okay. Let's not panic about Stefano Tsitsipas. And let's also... Um, scroll down here and read some other comments. Scroll. Okay. Um, wait, hold on. I think I scrolled too far. Scroll up. Let's get this one from um, Chrissy. Chrissy, do you have any thoughts on Djokovic's opening sets at this U.S. Open? He seems to come out sleepwalking, looking fatigued and out of sorts, making a lot of unforced errors that have led to lengthy uh, deuce games. Then once he loses the first set, he brings out the firing squad. Is this just him settling into the match or a bigger mental game? As Andy Roddick said best, first the legs, then the soul. We've seen this pattern of induced fatigue work on Medvedev at Australian Open. But do you think this type of physical warfare will work on Zverev, who moves well, is pretty fit, and has been serving great? There's many, many layers to this question. I think there are many things at play here. One of the things is, you know, if I can just speak to the Berrettini match first. Look, Novak made 17 unforced errors in that first set, and then he made like three, three, and then like, I don't, I'm not positive about the fourth set, but something like five. So he was way better in the latter three sets. Don't get me wrong. But part of it was also Mateo and a certain level. And this was, this is true for Brooksby as well. And probably also true for Kay Nishikori. There's a certain level of energy and intensity that a player can bring to the table for a certain period of time. And that window might be limited. And for Berrettini, it certainly is. One of the tiresome things about Djokovic Berrettini, uh, I have my gripes about things Berrettini does tactically over and over again that I think just don't work. And, and let me be clear that last night it wouldn't have made a difference because Djokovic was so great, so brilliant, so jaw-droppingly good 
in the three sets that he won that it wouldn't have mattered what Mateo did. I have some gripes about the things that Mateo does against Djokovic and things that more specifically things he doesn't do, like attack the second serve return. I still think, I think he will never beat Novak until he does that and he's just not doing it. But it's not a coincidence that in the last three times that Berrettini has played Novak in the best of five format, Mateo has won a set. And when Mateo has won a set, the crowd has been has been very energetic. He has played with a raw power, passion, energy, uh, an intensity that is like massive. And his serves are faster and his forehands are bigger and his feet are intense and he's finding that forehand and he's playing with a ferociousness. He's swinging that, you know, 10% harder and faster. And that's the most dangerous version of Berrettini. The version that can actually hit through Novak's defense. And that's a player that I just, it's so terrifying, Berrettini, when he's in that mode. But he just can't do that for three hours. He can't do it for three hours. So that's that's not a sustainable thing. Djokovic is so calm and comfortable the way he manages a match, so confident in his base level. The great ones, the greatest players, um, are very good at believing in their level and waiting for their opponents to drop. Um, they're all fantastic at that. And Djokovic does, obviously, a lot of things that Take out your legs, which is what Roddick is talking about. You know, the the obviously the consistency, the depth, the extension of rallies, the constant changing direction on the timing that he brings on the backhand and the forehand. All of these things make you run. Uh, returning the serve is the most simple one as well when Berrettini is like, Berrettini's not used to playing that many rallies on his serve. He's used to getting free points on about 50% of his first serves in. And against Novak, after the first set, he wasn't even close to 50. He might have been 25, 20. And that makes a huge difference. All these things that Novak does makes you tired. Um, so, so that's part of it. But also, it's just Novak has this base level that is exhausting and repeatable. And he can do it for four hours, for maybe even more. I don't know. I haven't seen him play a five-hour match in a long time. Um, and it's just, he's totally confident in that and he will, he will wear you down. So a lot of it is that, but I would not be answering your question if I didn't address the fact that at times it hasn't just been like Novak is wearing these guys down. It's also been first set. Novak is not moving as well. Novak's missing a ton of backhands like he did against Brooksby, um, Really, in a lot of these opening sets, Djokovic has just missed a lot of backhands, which has been strange, uh, not necessarily timing his forehand, sometimes missing a lot of first serves. Yeah, all of these things have happened. What do I think it is? I actually think that getting behind has actually relaxed him in certain cases. I do think that Novak has been tight at times. I, I know, obviously, in the preview, I said... I can't pick Djokovic to win in the final because I think that there's just too much pressure for any human to withstand. Um, and and if he overcomes that and if he still wins, it's just like, you know, again, I will be happy if he does that. I'll be tipping my cap and I'll be like, oh my God. Um, but I, I still think that he's human. 
And in the lead up to this, he has kind of confirmed to me what I felt coming in, that it was going to be hard for him to, um, at times, to just for this to be easy for him. It's just not going to be easy. Now, a great accomplishment will never be easy. And Novak did say something that I think is so accurate. The harder the path, the better the glory. That might not be a direct quote, but I think he he said something like that in his press conference after beating Mateo. You know, the, the, the saying, no pain, no gain, is kind of similar here. Um, it's certainly true. It's certainly the case. And it's not supposed to be easy here. But I think Djokovic being down has kind of triggered this, this uh, kind of fight-or-flight response from Novak that has kind of relaxed his tennis a little bit, where he's kind of down and um, it, it brings something out of him. It brings something out of a lot of tennis players, by the way. I mean, this is not unique to Novak necessarily. But also, I want to say he's been so calm emotionally in all of these cases. Like, when have we seen him expend a lot of energy and panic a lot and get really, really upset after losing these sets? I don't think we've seen it. He's been, like, very calm. And some people might interpret that as, oh, he's emotionally flat. I understand that, and look, I, I can't psychoanalyze that and say, you know, how exactly he should manage these situations, but obviously it's worked out every single time. I just think if you're playing Djokovic and you beat him in the first set and he looks totally calm, he's a little frustrated against Mateo. Don't get me wrong, a little frustrated against Mateo. But I think, like, when he's totally calm, it's a little bit disconcerting, especially con considering... um you know, adding to kind of the aura that Novak has and how difficult he is to beat. So that's another thing. He's really saved his energy a lot emotionally. He's just been so freaking calm. And I don't know if that's how he's dealt with the nerves. Maybe it's, you know, the crowd has been part of it. Um, I, I'm not I'm not really sure. But it's been interesting to watch. And I think the biggest part of it is a player like Brooksby, a player like Berrettini and Nishikori, they can't keep up the intensity. That, that they brought to the table when they beat Novak. And Novak has felt the most pressure in these first sets coming out of the gates. Runa, not nerves. I think that was just rust that, that he lost the second set. But in the other cases, I think you come out feeling a little bit tight on even terms. And from there, uh, Novak settled in and gained confidence, you know, from there. So... All right, um, let us hit the sponsors real quick of this video. Um, hold on, sorry about that, guys. First, I got to take down this. There we go. All right. This video is brought to you by Rally Tennis. Rally Tennis is a free mobile app that allows you to practice or train, um, allows you to play tennis in your area, whether you want to, uh, to, to practice or compete rather. I don't have it in front of me all in the head folks, but our friends at rally tennis, um, have you covered if you're looking for a partner, just look up rally tennis in the app store or go to rallytennis.com. And if you use Gil gross as the refer, you'll get a free 10% off um, on your opening deposit. Again, I do not have, <laughs> I didn't have it in front of me, but 
I think I was I was pretty close. I was pretty close. I I'm uh, I know my rally tennis at this point. Fantastic service they do. All right, let's bring bring it back up. Next comment. Let us go to um. Let's go to Sandra Oladon Rodriguez. Given the controversy Steph faced throughout the tournament, what are your thoughts on the duration of restroom breaks? Should there be a time limit or should it be left as is? I think there is also another another one that I kind of want to get to here about this very topic. Um, so let me just find that so I can read that. Um, oh, here it is. I think it's from um, Yana Madala. Read more. Yana Madala said, "What are your thoughts on the first round match?" Um, some other, some people on the other side say there are other players who took breaks longer than Tsitsipas during different matches in Slam slash Masters events, and those incidents didn't become an issue. So, what's your take on this recent incident? Um, how large will it impact the player if someone from other side of the net takes breaks frequently and longer than usual? How should players react slash adapt to these kinds of situations mentally and physically? Murray mentioned in his press conference that it affected him physically. What are your thoughts regarding the current rules on the break slash medical timeout? Do you think they are fine? Um, basically, should there be a change? And then there was, there was one more comment that, that basically said, should there be a set time? Like, should there be a set duration for all bathroom breaks? And, you know, maybe that should be, maybe that's the way to go where it's just like, okay, after the second set, this is how much time you get. Or after the fourth set, this is how much time you get. And I want to start um, with covering this controversy. I want to start by addressing that and that, that just that idea in itself, because I think it's a really, really good idea for many reasons. First of all, um, I think the players want breaks, so it's good for the players. What about the fans? I think it helps the fans. I think there's a reason why there are intermissions in plays. I think there's a reason why there's intermission in, you know, two intermissions at a hockey game, halftime at a soccer game, halftime at a football game, you know, I think they're halftime at a basketball game. I think these intermissions, they are good for fans. I think they, I, I just think a break is good <laughs> um, in general. And many things can be done with said breaks in terms of how the broadcast handles them, in terms of how the stadium entertainment handles them. And I think it makes a lot of sense. The difficult thing about regulating the duration of bathroom breaks is, first of all, that at every venue, it is different. And the bathroom at is, is a different length when you go from place to place to place. Sometimes it might be a four-minute walk to a bathroom break, in which case uh, a six-minute time limit wouldn't really work. In the case of Arthur Ashe, a six-minute time limit is probably pretty realistic because the locker room is right there. First, let's just address, like, is nine minutes, eight minutes, the amount of time that Tsitsipas was taking, is that a ridiculous amount of time to take? And is that too long? Yeah, it is. Uh, players who take, who are very familiar with Arthur Ashe, like Sloan Stevens, have put it best. Female players have to change out of sweaty sports bras 
and their clothes are much more elaborate and difficult to change. And, and she says, yeah, eight, nine minutes. It doesn't take that long. It just doesn't. And I've seen enough players go out and come back like Matteo Berrettini did last night in three minutes to know that Stefano Tsitsipas does not need nine minutes. He just doesn't. I don't know what he's doing in there. I think he's just taking his time and moving slow. If I were to guess, that's what he's doing in there. Um, but yeah, you don't. It's it's longer than you need. However, this is my take on the overall players abusing this because I think anyone can agree that Stefano Tsitsipas was not on maybe not unfairly singled out, but singled out. I don't. Regardless of if it was fair, if it was not fair, who cares? The point is, he was singled out. Many players do it. It's a thing, right? Tsitsipas did not invent the long bathroom break. Um, and it's difficult to blame the player. Now, you can make a decision as a fan. And you can say either, I like that. That is, I don't, or you can say, I, I don't mind that. And as a fan, that's okay with me. Or you can say, that's unappealing. That is off-putting. I don't like that. And as a fan, you get to decide that. And you know me on here, like, I'm not going to say you should like that or you should dislike that. I'm not going to tell you who to like when it comes to tennis players. That's the one thing I don't give my opinion on is who you should like. It's the one thing I just don't. I don't do it. So I won't here. So how Stefano Tsitsipas acts on the court, you can decide. But this is not new. And that's what was kind of amusing to me about this whole thing is that Stefano Tsitsipas throughout his career has made one thing very, very clear to me. He is going to do what it takes or what he feels like will give him the best chance to win within the rules. That is how he has been his whole career. And the first thing that I noticed about Stefano Tsitsipas is that he changes his racket at some questionable times. Um, there is just no rule about when you can or cannot go and get a new racket, right? And that is just one of the things I've noticed about, and, and that he does that. There's no rule against it. Now, if, if you don't mind that, that's fine. If you do mind that, that's also fine. Then root against the guy. Don't like him. Who cares? This is sports. This is sports and people get to choose who they like and they don't. That's it. That makes it fun. Kind of, if everybody that this is this is how this works. So in that case, uh, that's how it is. But do I think Tsitsipas engages in gamesmanship? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not new. This is not new for for me. I, I don't think this is new. Um, so you can blame him or you can blame the the umpire um, and the rules, which I think is maybe more reasonable to blame. Um, like Zverev when he played. Lloyd Harris in the quarterfinal and and what happened, I actually had to step away, um, but I, I watched it on replay. But, you know, what he did with the, oh, the video board is is being funky and showing weird angles. Like, in my opinion, the umpire needs to understand, look, this is not the time and we need to play this next point. Like, it's 6-5. Um, look. The umpires probably need to need to do a better job here when it comes to delaying play, and uh, they need to also be armed with the 
with the guidelines of how to go about that. So it's not their fault as humans, but, um, or we could just continue how it is. Now, I don't think there's, this is a, a massive, massive problem. I do think that the super long delays do disrupt us in a way that's a little bit, uh, that, that, that's tough from a fan perspective because it's like kind of waiting around, sitting around, and that's not great. But if we knew how long it was going to be, then we could schedule programming and, and entertainment around that. And uh, then fans could know this is how long I have to go and detach for a second and do what I got to do. And then I'll come back and that would be much better. But look, at the end of the day, I I think that we should probably focus on on the tennis here. Um, more than all of this outside noise. It is entertaining as a controversy. It is intriguing. But at the end of the day, it's up to you. Do you want to blame the rule? Do you want to blame Tsitsipas? Do you want to dislike him for it? Do you want to do you not care that he does what he needs to do within the rules to win? That is that is up to you, right? Okay. This one is from Mahmoud. Um, I asked you a few months ago about Alcaraz. So given what he has done in the U.S. Open, what are your expectations for his career or the next few years at least? Well, I mean, expectations. There's a variability here, which always makes me hesitant to forecast years and years and years into the future. But, um, you know, if you're going to ask me to predict if Alcaraz wins multiple slams, I would say yes. Um, I think that his movement and his athleticism is about as good as I've seen. And that's out of everything else, out of the big picture, that is what most reminds me of the big three. Uh, because, or really big four in this case, because I think Murray was an incredible athlete. I always made sure to keep in mind, I've said this before, that those four at the top of the sport, they were the four best movers in the sport. Like They were the four best athletes in the sport. That is the base of the modern game when it comes to just getting in a lot of rallies. It used to be a little bit more about, well, how good is your serve and how good are your volleys? Um, how good is your return and, and things like that. But now, now that they play a, a ton of baseline rallies, now that this is how the sport is played, the movement is so, so huge. Um, he's got the weaponry. He obviously hits huge off both wings, but he moves better than all these guys. His footwork, his balance, his explosiveness, his court coverage. Uh, it's so, his positioning, it's so, so good. And for that reason... Obviously, the way he competes um, is also great. He has a pretty complete game. I like that his weakness is his serve. I like that because that also kind of reminds me of these other guys. You know, he can be an elite returner. And again, it, it's very big three-like. I, I, I don't compare. Now, look, that doesn't mean that every player who's going to be very good for the next for the rest of time, is going to have things in common with the big three. Like Medvedev and Zverev, for example, 
they are not anything like any of the big three, even or the big four. They're nothing like those guys. That doesn't mean they are, can't do great things in this sport. So, so let me be clear about that. But if if we're looking for someone who reminds you of the big three, Sinner doesn't remind me of them. Um, you know, Tsitsipas doesn't quite remind me of any of them. Alcaraz does because. I think he has the makings of someone who is going to, throughout his career, be in the upper echelon of the returners in the sport. Uh, someone who we're going to say is the best, one of the best athletes in the games, one of the best uh, movers in the game, um, someone with very good technique, someone who competes very hard, and someone who has all the tools. So total package, I've always been... Always been incredibly high in Alcaraz, and uh, I just—it it, was—it was only a matter of time until he had his breakout at this level. The one thing that I, before I end this, I'm going to wrap this up because I don't want to talk too much on this. But the one thing that I is a question mark to me is how consistent is he? And when I say consistent, I mean I mean how often does he miss? Because that's going to be very important, obviously. And that's sometimes when someone has a great tournament. It's because they are missing less than usual, but that is a key, key component is just how consistent, uh, how consistent are you? You know, tennis is so often a game of mistakes and the reason Alcaraz I think has not, um, broken out until now is because despite looking so incredible when everything's working out, he still misses a lot. And obviously if you don't have a big serve, and you make a lot of unforced errors. You can't overcome that combination, right? That's never going to work. So um, I'm just, I'm still trying to gauge his consistency, but he's obviously he's 18. So is that going to come, right? That's why I, okay, I, I, I keep, I know this is sometimes I'm like a rambler, but that is the biggest reason why I misjudged Felix a little bit. Because I was super high on Felix, as everybody knows. Because same thing, athletic, firepower. But that athleticism never translated into defense, like I think Alcaraz defends much better. But more importantly, Felix misses too much. We Tennis is not always complicated. I know I like to make complicated analysis. I like to talk about contact points and... And sometimes spin rates and how net clearance works and angles and depth and incorporate all these things into game plans and directionals. I love that stuff. Sometimes it's very simple. Sometimes it's very simple. Felix, for the most part, he misses too much. That is why he his trajectory has not continued to rise up to where I thought that maybe he would be when he was very, very young and he was showing the, these awesome capabilities. So uh, it's very important, something I want to see out of a young player. I want to see someone uh, be a little bit, or have the ability at times at least to play like, okay, Jensen Brooksby. Doesn't miss. Um, so let's just segue to the next comment about Jensen Brooksby. Why not? Um, I'm trying to, let me, let me find the person who asked it. Um, I don't know if this is the best system for me because it's kind of hard for me to read on my software um, in, in terms of finding Brooksby, but let me just find this person. Okay. Jared Gonzalez, and this had 13 likes. So there's a lot of interest in Brooksby. Let's talk about Brooksby. 
Hey, Gil, give me an, an analysis on Jensen Brooksby. I think the media has been too hyperbolic with him since he gave Novak some trouble. I personally think he was just a bad matchup for Djokovic. He's a solid player, but not sure about his long-term potential. I mean, Maria Sakkari has a faster serve than him. I'm very passionate about Jensen Brooksby because I've been watching him a ton this summer. The reason to hype Jensen Brooksby, first of all, should not be because of the, the Djokovic match at all. Uh, the reason to hype him is because this is his first year on tour. First year. He's already in the top 100. This is not normal. Most players take a lot more than a year to break into the top 100. It literally took him like four months. That is incredible. Uh, his record on the Challenger Tour is incredible. He's got a pair of titles, over 20 wins um, to like five losses or something like that. He, in his first grass court tournament ever, made the final in Newport. Then, you know, goes to D.C., has a run. Like, these are his first tournaments ever. You have to understand this. He has never played tournaments before, and he's just going deep. But it is undeniable that Brooksby's game is difficult to comprehend. His serve is not fast. His ground strokes are not fast. And generally, that is a non-starter. A non-starter. If your serve is not fast and your ground strokes are not fast, you're generally not going to be very good. Um, but Brooksby wins tennis matches. Why? I'm going to do a more in-depth analysis on Brooksby in the future. I can't do it right now. But the reason is, first of all, um, he's obviously extremely fit. That's the base. Great fitness. From there, it is consistency. Doesn't miss. Always present. Always focused. Never lapses. Always clear shot selection. Doesn't miss shots. Never easy errors. Uh, think like Gilles Simone in his prime. How Simone's never really going to miss an easy ball for the most part. Think Andy Murray in his prime. Not really going to miss. Um, obviously, obviously I can continue to go higher, but I'm, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave like prime Nadal and Djokovic out of this because it's not really who we're trying to compare Brooksby to. Um, not only does he not miss, because that's not good enough. Not missing is not good enough at the top level. He has great depth. And that's the one thing that I think people probably don't do a good enough job of picking up when they watch Brooksby is just how deep his ball lands. So he's the more fit player, generally speaking. He's not missing. He's hitting with depth. Uh, he has a good backhand down the line. He changes direction. That's kind of his best finishing shot. He has good drop shots. He's got good hands. Uh, he's very good at sticking to a game plan. His coach will tell him what to do, how to play a certain player, and Jensen is so mentally sharp and present. He will execute that game plan over and over and over again, and it will never leave his mind. So these are his strengths. He's also extraordinarily tough. So tough the way he competes. Competes as hard as anyone. Let, let's be honest. Most players would have quit multiple times um, in Jensen Brooksby's con uh, position and in the open. He was cramping at the end against Emer. He looked down and out um, against Fritz at, at a point. Not so much in that match. Against Karatsev, he looked absolutely finished, down two sets to one on the heels of two physical matches. Kept fighting, was injured. Uh, 
had a hip injury. I can tell you guys um, that Brooksby went into the Djokovic match banged up and was really struggling physically. Um, at at the end of the Karatsev match, he beat Karatsev with the injury, with an injury. And then he went into the Djokovic match with that same injury. Uh, and then in the first set, obviously, it he had been able to rest it. Plus, he was probably, who knows what he did with pain killing and cortisone and, and stuff like that. And it did not affect him, but ultimately it caught up with him. That was always going to be how that match was going to go in terms of Brooksby's physicality. He did come in with an injury. But... The compete level is just through the roof with him. Um, now, if I didn't answer your question, Jared, I, I guess the question is... Oh, the, it's not a question. It's just give me analysis. How good will Jensen Brooksby be? It, it's pretty hard to, to, to figure that out right now. Um, don't get me wrong. It's very difficult to figure that out right now. But... I'd be really surprised if, I don't know, I'm going to give a floor because I don't really know what his ceiling is. I can't figure it out, but um, he is going to be a top 30 player. Um, but I don't know. Let's take it one thing at a time. Uh, I'm more, I'm, it, it's, it's hard to figure out what his ceiling is. Very difficult. Um, just because he's so unique. So, so unique and very, very uh, interesting. All right. How long have I been talking? Hour and eight minutes? Where should we go next? Uh, let's go to one from Philip. Philip, um, are you surprised by the court speed of the U.S. Open this year? It is definitely not slow. You kept re repeating in the preview and for some time that the conditions at the U.S. Open are slow and high bouncing. This last year, they are the same as last year. Ever since manufacturer changed from deco turf to lake cold, U.S. Open has been at least relatively fast for most of its history, I think, except for a period of 2015 through 2019 when the courts were much slower, which allowed Vavrinka and Nadal to have more success. Also, are you familiar with court pace in in index? Of course I am. Um, statistical parameter, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think I read somewhere that the U.S. Open between 2015-2019 was somewhere around 30 to 35, a bit faster than Indian Wells, and now the CPI is somewhere between 40 to 45, similar to Shanghai and Australia. Would really like to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. I have a lot of issues with CPI. I'm not going to get into them. I don't think... Uh, look, I appreciate CPI. Like, I, I, I wouldn't encourage you to ignore CPI, but there are a ton of issues with it. They don't, it doesn't, the problem with CPI, it doesn't take into account any of the external factors, such as temperature, such as altitude, such as the type of tennis ball that's being played with. And all these things are necessary to paint a complete picture. That's my issue with CPI. With that being said, this comment is correct. I was wrong. Um, maybe I had a little bit of amnesia about last year. I remember that the Open was faster last year, um, but I thought that was more so on the outer courts than the stadium courts. I thought the stadium courts were... Uh, they always play a little bit slower, but I guess I guess maybe it. I just didn't quite adjust to the change that has occurred. You're absolutely... This comment is spot on because they did get very slow from 2015 to 2019. Uh, and it was kind of like Indian Wells, not quite that slow. 
And I mean, yeah, the, the conditions are quick this year, very quick. And I was off about it on the preview. Now, luckily, my predictions, despite getting the conditions completely wrong, my predictions weren't that bad um, for the most part, right? Obviously, three out of the four semifinalists, but that was kind of easy. Um, the quarterfinalists, there were so many surprise quarterfinalists. I mean, you know, who had some of these guys, right? Who had Botik van de Zanschlup in the quarterfinal? Like, I apologize for not getting that one right, but maybe I got a little lucky, though, because I did completely misjudge the conditions. So, um, let's see. What's the, is there a question in here? Are you surprised? I guess that's the question. Well, yeah, I, I was surprised because I, I guess, I guess I've been conditioned to consider the U.S. Open slow because of what happened when it changed in 2015, and I need to change my thinking now. And for some reason, whatever it was in 2020, whether I had amnesia or not, I just hadn't quite made that shift. So now, obviously, I've made that shift, but it has been very, very significant in certain cases. Um, mostly Felix. Mostly Felix has really benefited from it. Uh, Felix, Felix's first serve has been unbelievably effective in this tournament. Uh, I know in his wins over Bautista Agut and Tiafo, he served over 20 aces and well over 80% um, first serve points won. Let's see what he did because um, I, I can pull it up easily. Um that's been very important for Felix, and that's an example of why the court speed, one example of why it's been important, and the player who comes to mind who's most benefited from it. Uh, I don't know who's been most you know, hurt by it, but yeah, I mean, I think it's playing pretty close to Australia. Okay, feel, oh, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I shouldn't look at Felix's match against Alcaraz because it was 6-3-3-1. I guess I can look at first serve points one. Uh for for the fun of it, seventy nine percent. But anyway, he was over eighty percent against Francis and RBA, which is fantastic. So um, yeah, that that that's been a big deal. But yeah, certainly I was wrong, and the U.S. Open is now fast again. And um, do note that for the future and for the upcoming matches, right? Uh, let's talk more though about about. FAA because Nasser or Nasser says um, about FAA, his mental game and his first serve improved a lot. He seems to be able to keep his composure in tough moments, which helped him get through a very tough quarter. Do you relate that to Uncle Tony? Do you expect to see him doing this again and be top 10? Well, um, Let me begin by saying I think the win against Francis could potentially, I don't know that I'm predicting this, but it has the potential to change Felix's career forever, I think. Uh, because this win against Francis, obviously primetime, 
packed Arthur Ashe Stadium, Tiafo playing very, very well, and Felix just ran through the finish line there. Also, Felix is the favorite there. He's supposed to win. He's expected to win. Felix just, it's the first time I saw him really play a big, big match, a match that had a big match feel, and he was in a pressure cooker with the crowd against him in a, in a really big way. And he just mentally was very steady. Totally, totally flew through, handled his nerve. Handled his nerves completely, completely handled them. It's the first time I've seen that. And I think getting through that match is absolutely massive for him. I think it could change could change a lot for him and his career because I've never seen him hold his nerve quite that well. Um, he did have a good, you know, he closed out the Zverev upset at Wimbledon well, but there were moments in that match where he was not handling his nerves well. So start to finish, that was a great win. Um, for for Felix, there's no doubt about it. Especially after against RBA, he blew a, a two sets to love lead, and and he had done that in Australia against Karatsev, and then he had done that um, at at Wimbledon, right, against Zverev, and then he did it again. Um, so now he's two and one when he does that. But still, it it's a it's a big deal for for Felix and a, a very positive development, obviously, and well deserved first semifinal. Uh, in terms of how he's winning from a technical perspective, the thing is, I still think there's work to do. There's still work to do in how he constructs his his rallies. Um, I think his backhand is not missing, is very consistent, which is good. It's heavy. It's got depth. Um, it's not... But uh, the forehand has been also decently consistent, but I don't think that he's made this run by winning baseline rallies against elite players. And ultimately, he needs to get to a point where he can do that before Felix is going to really jump up in his career. And that he hasn't shown me. But mentally, he's looked way better. First serve, it's fantastic. It's underrated. And it's time to start thinking of Felix as one of the better servers in the world because it is a tremendous delivery. And it's no surprise that he's had great success on these speedier courts, US Open and, um, and Wimbledon, because... And, you know, and he really struggled on the clay when his first serve was not as effective because Felix has, again, a ways to go until he's consistent enough where he's winning baseline rallies at a very high rate against the best players or at a high enough rate against the best players. But right now, with these short kind of one-two combinations, he's holding serve um, very impressively here, and he's been difficult to deal with. Now, Medvedev's going to return his serve. In the semifinal. And let's see how he handles that. Because now it's okay. Can he outduel Medvedev in enough baseline rallies? That's going to be a whole nother test. He has not had to deal with anything like that in the tournament so far. Thoughts on Alexi Popperin? I'm going to go quick with the rest of the YouTube comments, guys. Um, and then I'll get to Twitter. Because I want to go... I don't know. I'll go an hour. I'll go about a half hour more, if that. Um, Vonch wants to know if uh, if my thoughts on Andy Murray sending a tweet the next day slamming Tsitsipas. 
whatever, a, a little bit, a little bit immature by Murray, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's fine. It's immature. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take a massive moral issue, right? I mean, Murray's saying, "Look, I'm upset with how that played out." Um, and by the way, I guess, I guess. I talked so long about the bathroom thing. The one thing I didn't say is, do I really think it affects these matches? I do. I sympathize with what Andy Murray was saying. Like, if you take, if you do not play for 10 minutes, your body does get cold. And it's really difficult. That's a difficult thing. Now, if you mentally say, crap, I'm, I'm cold. This, this is BS. I'm so, I'm so pissed about this. It's get, that's obviously going to make it worse, and that's what Murray did. He he not only probably got cold, but he was like, "This sucks. I'm it's I'm cold now. My body's cold." That totally happens. It doesn't take very long if you sit in a chair for your body to get cold. And what players need to do is they need to get up. They need to hit some serves. Um, I saw some people suggest that there should be hitting partners so that players can come out and and hit while the other players are in the bathroom. That just seems like logistically. Like, look, there are a lot of people that work at tournaments, but to to add another person, part of the court staff, it's not, it wouldn't be a big deal for big matches, but are you going to do that for every match? Are you going to have someone, are you going to have someone on the out, one person on the outer courts who's like there to hit with players? That just seems like a non-essential staff that tournaments are not going to want to add. And it just, something about it seems a little bit ridiculous to me. And I, I can't really fully get on board with that. I mean... Hats off, creative idea, but I can't really fully get on board with that. But yeah, I think it's legitimate. Will Carlos Alcaraz win multiple slams? I, I think he will. I think he will. I agree with high H. Um, Sandeep, who do you think are the best three players in terms of these aspects? Forehand, backhand, serve, return, movement. Not going to do that right now. When the year ends, I want to make a lot of lists like that. I want to do like top five forehands, top five backhands. That's my idea. So I'm not going to do that right now. Um, hey, Gil, it's Angelos from Australia. Love your show. Uh, what do you think about the cases of Tsitsipas and Rublev? Tsitsipas with the ongoing issue of the backhand and the backhand return on courts that aren't clay. And also Rublev with the second serve and also burning out either physically or mentally in the fifth set for the second consecutive slam against players he should be beating. Do you think the two can sort out these issues in the near future, or will they be ongoing? Secondly, what do you think of Alexi Popperin at the moment? He seems like he has all the tools, um, but he isn't using them to full potential. Do you see a future top 10 for him? And there's another person asking me about Alexi Popperin somewhere here. So um, my thoughts on Alexi Popperin first, before I get to Tsitsipas and Rublev, I mean, he's got a great serve and a great forehand. And as Matteo Berrettini has shown us, that will take you very, very far. But the backhand technically is not great. The grip is very extreme. And that's a like a kind of a high risk. It's a shot that he misses a lot, but he doesn't really get much reward out of it. And even the forehand flies on him a lot. On quick courts, you don't want to play him. The most important thing in his career is that he's healthy, and that's good. But do I see a top 10? To be honest, I've never... Look, I mean, maybe he'll prove me wrong. No, I don't see a future top 10 for him. Uh, when when you say all the tools, like, again, this is a player who 
probably doesn't really isn't really comfortable enough from neutral and defense isn't quite consistent enough. He's got great offensive tools and that's awesome, but it will only get you so far. Um it could get him pretty far if if he stays healthy and fine tunes some of these things. I will keep an eye on him more. You know, he's a player that also honestly, he has not been successful enough in recent years for me to watch a ton of him. Uh I do believe you know, in, in Madrid, he made a run, and I think he was a dark horse because Madrid is awesome serving conditions. So uh, in in servers and offensive conditions, he's very dangerous. Uh, in terms of Rublev, I'm a little concerned. I mean, it depends what the goal is for Rublev. But I'm concerned about the best-of-five format until Rublev gets, I think, even more fit. I'm concerned about the best of five format for him. And for Tsitsipas, the backhand return is a continuing issue that has been... It's been a long time coming now that the rest of his game has looked far ahead of the backhand return. And for now, I have to think that at some point it will go from a weakness. No, I think it'll always be a weakness. I think at some point it'll go from a flat-out weakness to something that he can manage pretty well. Right now it's just not that, but it might take him a really long time. It took team a very long time to learn how to defend on his backhand and have, you know, disciplined shot selection. It took team until he was 26 or 27. So Tsitsipas can still accomplish amazing things on slower courts. But yeah, right now, I mean, the return, it just it's tough because he's just a lot of time is going by now and he doesn't seem to know what to do to remedy this issue. Assessment of Murray's game. Um, yeah, like is Andy Murray back, I guess, is kind of the general question. I saw it a couple of times. Um Tough, you know. I'm look, I'm super encouraged by how we played that first round match with CT Pass. It's great to see. At the end of the day, I, <laughs> I, I, I've kind of expected for a while now that Murray is going to be a relevant player or should be a relevant player because his technique is still really good. Um, he Still has incredible hands and great talent, and that that stuff just doesn't go away. Uh, but finally, I think that he had enough confidence here against Tsitsipas where he just was playing his best for a long stretch of time, and that is just something that he wasn't able to do for a long time. Like, look, he's still just not that fast anymore or not as fast anymore, and of course that's going to limit him. But um, I don't know what his goals are, really. You know, but I, I think, what do I think he can do? I think he can maybe get in the top 30 if he stays healthy for a while now and he starts starts feeling good about himself. But I don't think he can go much past that. That's my gut. That's my sense. I don't have deep analysis on it, but that is just kind of what I'm feeling like. Okay, here's a long comment that has 15 likes. It is from Hark. Um, might not be super relevant to the U.S. Open specifically, but I've always wondered why the draws have matches from the same round on two separate days. 
players playing on the earlier day have an extra day of rest before the semifinal, which is especially crucial at this stage of the tournament. I'm going to stop this right now and just say I slightly disagree with that. I don't think players need two days for the most part. Normally one day is enough and they, they, they have recovered. There might be instances where they've played particularly brutal matches where they might require two days, but one day, that, that's usually enough. That, that should cut it. One day is really good for these guys. They're used to playing every single day. For most of the year. So keep that in mind. Um, the draws already add enough of an element of luck to make the Grand Slam interesting, but this seems too much to me. Surprisingly, I've never heard anyone talk about this, any player complain about this, or any stats showing Grand Slam winners group distribution. I'd love to see that. I would love to see some stats. Uh, my sense is that we would not see a significant advantage for the players with two days rest. I think if you play really well and you play a short match... You probably want to get back out there. I don't I don't know if you want to wait around two days. Like if you're feeling great about your game, you want to hit the courts. Like let's let's play again. So I don't think it's so black and white that two days is just this advantage. I, I really don't. Um I extend the same question to the order of play on a specific day. Do players prefer playing at night? I would assume most players want to play during the day as early as possible to get extra rest. Players who play late at night plus have to do press conferences that can go up until 2 or 3 a.m. for longer matches, especially given some of the U.S. Open delays. Doesn't this ruin their sleep slash training cycle? Again, haven't heard much about this issue. This That issue, I really, I have heard a lot about that issue. Um, Maria Sakari was saying, oh, I hate night matches. I don't want to play at night. Then she played at night and said, never mind. I love this. This is fun. Um, I think... Players will often, the top players will request. They will they will ask the tournaments and their coaches will say, will put in requests with the tournament organizers. They will say, uh, please, can, can I play during the day or can I play at night? Um, so that is something that, that happens. But it, it all depends, right? If it's a really hot, you know, scorching day, remember Djokovic and uh, other players at the Olympics said, hey, can we, we got to play later. It's too hot at this time of day. So let's play later. I'm sure those players wanted to play when the sun wasn't, was, was set and it was a little bit cooler. So, you know, would you rather play a couple, uh, a couple hours earlier in, in heat and humidity that is going to absolutely suck everything out of your body? Or would you rather play in comfortable conditions where you're not going to get as drained? Of course, you'd rather play in the more comfortable conditions. Or are you like John Isner? Like, I don't think it helped that... Um, I'm trying to think what, what match it was. There there were some... Isner played at night, right? In the first round when he lost. I forget. Oh, oh God, I'm, I'm fuzzy on this. But like, I don't think John Isner... I don't think it helped John Isner to play at night, for example. Um, or And if he didn't, I apologize. Just use it as a hypothetical. But uh, he is great in the heat. Like, I don't think he wants to play at night. So, I don't think Federer wants to play at night because I think he wants the quicker conditions for the most part. So, it, it totally differs. But players do have preferences, but that those preferences are not always the same. Okay. The last part of this co comment from Hark. Note, I'm a Djokovic fan, and he seems to be playing all the night sessions, maybe to attract crowd. Plus, he doesn't have the extra day of rest. So this bothers me a lot, especially because it's such a historic occasion. But if he hasn't brought up this issue, then who am I to complain? I still think it's worth a discussion. Um, okay, again, like I think that Novak, there are some good parts of this. There are some good parts that he's playing at night. First of all, the final is going to be an afternoon start. So 
Like playing at 11 a.m. is not going to help his body clock really. Um, but but yeah, this is also let, let's be real here about this. Th this whole thing, and this goes back to why the U.S. Open stacks and schedules the the tournament the way they do. Uh, they do not want a men's quarterfinals day and a women's quarterfinals day like uh, right like like Wimbledon has. They would rather mix it up, and in order to mix it up which in my opinion is a better product for uh, that, that suits the fans a little bit better, gives you more of a balance to your event uh, is just because th they want that. And look, this is, this is entertainment. You know, right now what you're thinking of is total X's and O's fairness of competition. This is entertainment. This is, this is entered. These are entertainers. This is the entertainment business and the things that happen and the decisions that are made, the first thing you need to remember is that this is a business here, first and foremost. Why is Novak playing at night? Yeah, it's because it's because uh, night sessions at the U.S. Open are a really big deal around here for clients after work. You know, for in 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 the corporate space, right? People who work can go. After work, uh, there is a certain, you know, branding, marketing, a, a glean, a shine to it. The crowds are full. The crowds are rowdy. And TV, primetime, better ratings. What do you think rates better? So ESPN, the rights holders, they want Novak at night. This is money. They want the ratings to be up. By the way, the U.S. Open wants the ratings to be up because then when the rights deal ends, they can say, these are what our ratings are, and this is how much you need to pay us for our rights. All of this is business. That's why Novak's at night. And that's how it is. That's how it needs to be. That's how it should be. You know, it, it can't, not everything can be fair. Um, let me just take a moment here. There are a couple of, um, there are a couple of comments about, uh, first of all, some people who tuned in and enjoyed me on the radio and thank you. For you guys who who listen to U.S. Open Radio and tuned in, um, really appreciate it. One of my highlights, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, is that I met a couple of people on the grounds. I was recognized by a couple of people, some viewers, some fans, and uh, all of I I love that. So if if one of if uh, if you're watching this and you are one of the people who ran into me, um, it was incredible to to meet some of you guys out there, and uh, made me feel very good. Uh, this one from Footfault Tennis. What can Berrettini achieve in his career, and do you think he's been heavily underrated the past year or so, despite making fourth-round appearances or better at slams now? Uh, I think, what, four slams in a row maybe? As well as a Masters final this year and, of course, the Wimbledon final. Also, what does he need to do to to be uh, firmly placed in the same group as Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and team as he confidently believes he should be? Well, he's got to beat those guys. If he doesn't beat those guys, he's not going to be considered one of them, period. And he also needs to win a big title, you know. And he's had some chances here, like he played Zverev in what I believe is ideal conditions for both Zverev and Berrettini in the Madrid final, and it wasn't a great match. And he's gotten a couple cracks at Novak, and all of the showings have been okay, right? Roland Garros... Wimbledon and now U.S. Open, they've all been okay. The problem is they've it's been the same match three times now. It's been the same exact match. So 
look, I mean, Medvedev had his, look, Medvedev has more big titles. He has more, way more master's titles and he's had more success on hard courts. Tsitsipas has beaten Federer in Australia. He's beaten Nadal in Australia. He's pushed a Djokovic in Par- to five sets in Paris twice. Like Berrettini has not done that. Um, Zverev obviously has an Olympic gold now, has tons of Masters, has a bunch of Masters 1000s titles. He's been winning them on a, on a, I don't know, a regular basis, consistent basis, I'd say, for like four seasons now. Like Berrettini has not achieved what those guys have achieved. He hasn't. Now, if you want to make an argument that his level right now is up there with him, again, you can make that argument. I don't think he's there. I think he's just slightly below it. He's straddling the line between that tier and the tier below it. And uh, I just think it's kind of in between that. All right, question from Max. Um... Three questions. What has been your favorite match at this tournament? My favorite match at this tournament, very, very difficult um, to answer, um, especially because some of the matches I didn't watch from beginning to end. Um, My favorite set of the tournament was by far the second set of Djokovic-Brooksby. And I believe I was able to walk into Ash um, at like, was it three love? I think I walked into Ash at three love in that set, and I got to just just the next the next couple. I think it was like fifty minutes because they played that twenty minute game. That was the best set of tennis I'd seen. Best match, um, might that I watched from start to finish. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, honestly, I think that it has been. I think it's been Layla Fernandez matches for the most part. Like I think that's been that's been the most captivating. Those have been the most captivating matches. It's probably Fernandez Fidelina. It was probably the best match. Um now I think if I if I was at Titi Pas Alcaraz, it, it might be that. Um, but I was not there, so or or Murray Titi Pas. You know, I'm sure that was incredible also. I couldn't really watch that one either. So, yeah, probably. But Layla Fernandez, every match has been totally electric. I, I did not see any of the Osaka one, but Kerber, incredible. That match was incredible. Um, I also, shout out to the third set tiebreak between Pliskova and Amanda Anisimova. That was incredible. And Tiafo Rublev was fantastic. That was a lot of fun. Now, the fifth set was a little bit anticlimactic, but that was also a great match that I think deserves a shout out. Um, were the conditions what you expected? I already answered that. No. Um, most of Medvedev's matches have been during the day session. Do you think he'll struggle to adapt when the match drifts to evening? I don't think so. No. Um, the thing is, here's one thing about Ash. Since they installed the roof, it's very sheltered from the elements. That used to not be the case. It used to be a windy stadium. Very windy. It's no longer that. It's not windy. Uh, it is now shaded. It used to not be shaded. Uh, so that's another factor. So it mostly feels the same in there for the most part. It definitely slows down a little bit at night. I don't think that's a big issue for Medvedev. I think I think that's fine for him. 
finals and semifinals night or day. Finals is afternoon. I believe semifinals is also afternoon. But I'm not positive. I know the women's finals is uh, tonight at 7. So that's 20 minutes from now. Looking forward to those. Uh, take on Lloyd Harris. Oh, this was before the Zverev match that this person commented. Look, Lloyd has uh, a lot of technical issues on his backhand, but he's got a nice forehand. He's a great athlete. He's got a good serve. Um, very fluid for his size. Um, I was kind of disappointed mentally in how what went down against Zverev after that first set. But Harris has a really big game with his serve and his forehand and uh, his fluid athleticism. So... He, he won't go away quietly. Lloyd Harris will be a player. No doubt about it. Um, any other American events? Uh, just, just tennis channel stuff right now. I'm not working for any other tournaments in the near future as far as I know. How would tennis be affected if it were played with one serve? I'm going to get to Twitter, by the way. I'm almost I'm almost done with these YouTube comments. Oh, tennis with one serve? First of all, I would love for some exhibitions to be played like this. The one serve thing does kind of fascinate me. And by the way, if you are a, a junior or a coach or whatever, um, I know that I think that it's a lot of fun to play a practice set with one serve if you're working on... On second serves, um, I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. So if you're working on your second serve, your kick serve, play practice sets with one serve. It's a, it's fun. It's a fun way to work on your second serve. Uh, more fun than hitting a bucket of second serves with no you know points after it. So, um, yeah, like it would become more about who's best in rallies. So Schwartzman would be a better player. Um, by a lot, um, and players like that, that that's kind of all I can kind of say The the, the players who, the players who don't, who, who serve big, but don't defend and play from neutral as well. They would, they would really, uh, suffer in that kind of format. No doubt about it. This comment also goes on to say that Nadal Djokovic would gain separation from Federer. Federer has a great second serve, one of the best of all time probably, but you're probably also correct that if you if you take away, if you played tennis with one serve, Federer would be the member of the big three that would suffer the most from that. No doubt, no doubt about that. What are the three metrics that you wish were tracked that would add to the viewing experience? That's easy. Um... um Okay, so viewing experience, just in terms of stats, I would say the first thing is more, I think you see this, that, that you'd love more raw data during rallies. I agree. Average ground stroke speeds, I would love. Um, I think that tells you a lot. Uh, so average ground stroke speeds, average net clearance, uh, RPM. Right, those three things that tell you about how the ball is being hit. Those things would be cool. In a separate category would be 
Rally Length Statistics, which Infosys does a great job. IBM tracks it as well, but it's not available to fans. It's only available to broadcasters and, and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, who's winning 0 through 4? Who's winning 4 through 8? Who's winning 9 plus? Those are arbitrary numbers, but just any rally length statistics. And also, percent of returns in play. Now, that is the shocker to me because that is easy. That should be in there. I don't know why that's not in every stat page. It's very easy to comprehend for all fans. It is not complicated, and I think that is a huge miss that that's not part of the stats. What do you think Think of Botik van de Zanschloop's game? Uh, this question is from Sugimi. I think it's quite well-rounded and has the potential to be a top 50 or even a top 30 player. If it wasn't for fatigue, he would have pushed Daniil Medvedev further. I'm not like convinced yet, but I haven't seen that much. Obviously, because he's kind of a big, stocky guy, I, I underestimated his movement. He moves quite well. Um, he's got a really nice backhand. It can do a lot of damage. His forehand is technically funky, but can get it done. Uh, that's a shot that, that's a side that concerns me for the most part, though, his forehand wing. He's got a very nice serve as well, but I was mostly impressed with his patience and his rally tolerance against uh, Schwartzman and even against Medvedev. And yeah, he was very impressive. Um, he's qualified for like all of the majors this year, which is awesome. Um, so I'd like to see him more against elite competition. I would pump the brakes a little bit on top 30 because I'm just not sold on, on that yet. Opinion on Karatsev. Let me just quickly say his forehand has not been as good as it was when he was playing really, really great. It just hasn't been. You know, the backhand is still good. You know, the serves are right. The movement's good. But the, but the forehand has just not been as consistent as it was when Karatsev was playing really, really well. You know, right now he's a top 30 player, but not much more than that. Aslan Karatsev, he's just a top 30 player. Is Alcaraz the best player under 20 since Nadal? Um, <clears throat> I guess... <laughs> There's like an argument in the comments <clears throat> about Djokovic. It is probably Djokovic. Um, but anyway, in general, like, is, is Alcaraz the best like teenage prospect on the men's side in a while? Um, I would say yes. Ceiling for Tiafo and Opelka. Opelka ceiling is top 10. Tiafo, not quite. Probably top 20, top 25. Um, could they win a major? No, I wouldn't see, couldn't see either of them winning a major. Do you agree that Medvedev has had a cake, a cakewalk draw? Yes, I would agree with that. Let's switch gears now. Let's go to, uh, Twitter. Um, hit the wrong button there. There's Twitter. All right. Um, Yeah, this is not the best system that I've that I've tried to to do here. I will I will adjust. Um, 
net for next time. It's kind of difficult for me to navigate all of this. Um, this one from Laura. Uh, do not think Berrettini, and by the way, 15 more minutes. I'm going to get out of here at 7, and we can all enjoy the women's finals. Uh, from Laura B., do you not think Berrettini is overrated? Okay, there is no one to replace him, but as a number six, he is disappointing. He overrates himself. Um, I think I've I think I've talked enough about about Berrettini. I don't know, overrated, underrated. It depends where you're rating him. You know, um, Zerk Vandenberg. In the past, you've said that Daniil Medvedev's ability to generate his own offense seems to be limited by his physique slash lack of fast twitch fibers. Have you seen anything to make you change your mind on this? Has he enhanced his offensive arsenal at all in the last year? A little bit. It's still his weakness. I think he is a little bit better there. Uh, I think the main thing that has really improved are his passing shots and his ability to, t to uh, dip the ball down low. Uh, but in terms of his forehand and his ability to generate off the, the low and slow, you know, paced balls, no, I don't. I think it's still a weakness, really. From Mary, are you still confident with your prediction for the final? For now, I'll say yes. I don't want to get into that too much. From Amin, isn't it interesting that Djokovic's greatest threats fitness-wise are RBA, 33 years old, and PCB, 30 years old? Shouldn't the younger players, 20 through 26 years, be a greater threat? And what is making the difference now? Well, from a fitness perspective, I don't know. I mean, part of what makes RBA and PCB so good is that they're able to trade with depth so well. Again, let me say, like, a good trade, a good trade is unattackable. That's the parameters. Doesn't need, it's not damaging, because now it's not a trade. But a good trade is an unattackable shot. And it's unattackable because, obviously, it has enough pace, um, enough heaviness, but most importantly, enough depth. That's really what it mostly comes down to. So, enough depth that it's unattackable. Um... And if you can do that consistently without missing over and over and over again, that's what you need to unlock the capabilities of your fitness because that's how you drag out rallies. Otherwise, you get attacked or you miss, right? Either you miss so the rally doesn't go long or you get attacked so the rally doesn't go long. It's not just a fitness thing. This is very technical with, with an RBA and a PCB because you need to be able to drag out the rallies, right? Um, what's your final pr prediction? If you watched the, the preview, I'm, I'm not going to change it right now, but again, I will have a final preview when we know the real finals. But for now it was Medvedev defeats Djokovic, uh, in five sets. But by the way, guys, when I say five sets, let me just repeat this. Cause some people don't understand this. When I say five sets, that doesn't mean that I think the match is going to go five. That means that is code for, it's a difficult prediction that I was not sure about. That's what that is code for. Four sets mean I am, means I am confident. Three sets would be means I am shocked if I am not right. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that I think it's going five. Okay. Um, back to Twitter. Milos Kerstich. What was the best match? Answered that already. But uh, which player impressed you the most so far? Which player impressed me the most? I mean, there were no like insane... You know, there were no insane revelations other than like, like Raducanu and Fernandez. Obviously, <laughs> obviously they were they were the the shocks and and the extremely impressive. I mean, look, watching Novak up close is 
that's the most impressive thing I saw because of mostly his movement. Watching his movement is just, it's incredible. Um, I liked a lot of the time to not follow the ball. Instead of follow the ball, I would just watch Novak. Anyone who who has the privilege to to see some of these guys compete should try that on a couple of points and watch how they're always athletic at all times, always athletic, powerful, balanced, how their minds are always working in terms of uh, positioning and how they're making these small adjustments with their positioning at all times, how they're anticipating at all times, um, and just how how intense they are at all times during the point in between shots. So I, I took great pleasure in, in watching that. And there was one point that I'll remember against Berrettini where I was sitting on the, uh, the side of the camera well opposite the chair and Berrettini hit... 126 miles per hour, flat serve out wide on the ad side, hit his spot and had a great angle. And I'm watching the flight of the ball and suddenly Djokovic flies into my vision and hits a full stretch backhand return, lasered cross court, and then gets to like a backhand drop shot on the next ball and measures a perfect cross court backhand winner. That's the, the, the point that will probably stick in my head better than anything. Do you like the way the courts are playing this year? I'm a little bit torn because I have nothing against the fact that they're playing fast. The only thing is I, I would like Australia and New York to play a little bit differently. I think that provides some nice diversity. So I'm torn on that. Have I changed my take on anyone from watching them in the flesh? Not off the top of my head, no. Um... This one from Chris, my friend Chris Lucy. Hope you're well if you're watching. Um, I feel as though I've seen a lot of players waste opportunities by playing really weak slice backhands and forehands. Am I wrong to say this is a perplexing and frustrating trend to watch? Uh, could be totally wrong, but many of the young players keep thinking they're fetter and playing these slice shots that let their opponents take control of points. If you're talking about Berrettini, then I think his backhand slice just... That's a little overrated, I gotta say. Berrettini's backhand slice is a little overrated uh, because sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. Um, that's a shot that I think against Novak, he needs to hit and he needs to execute well in order to to find himself forehands and to keep Djokovic off balance. Because if he trades topspin backhands with Djokovic, he's totally dead. He's totally toast. So I think Berrettini needs to do that if that's kind of what you're referring to. Overall, that's not a trend that I've seen. I also think Tsitsipas, when, when he opts to hit his backhand slice, sometimes that's a mess. But again, that's because he's not hitting it well. It's not because backhand slice is not a shot that should be hit and utilized by everyone, right? Okay, and let's end on this. Unless there's a super chat that I will answer. If anyone wants to um, put in a super chat in the live chat, I will, of course, answer that. But this is your warning because if there's no super chat after I finish answering this question, I'm going to wrap things up here, all right? Uh, with the acknowledgement that there is a uh, delay. <laughs> um. And the question is, um, being in Ash, what are your thoughts on the crowd when Novak was playing? And do you think he will have the crowd on his side against Zverev? 
here is my take on the crowd, and here's what I think you should know about the crowd. The crowds. Um, he is not getting universal support. Uh, but he is also not getting unanimous, uh, you know, hostile crowds, right? Most of the crowds have been split. There have been a lot of diehard Nole fans that have shown up clearly passionate, invested, loud, rowdy, um, many times in expensive seats in Novak's year, encouraging him, supporting him. Um, and I thought the Berrettini match was the best example of that. I thought there were many, many massive Nole fans, in my opinion, not just regular casual tennis fans, but massive Nole fans in the crowd. That was my sense from it. Uh, there were chants of Nole, Nole ringing through the, the, the stadium as well. However, there are still a lot of people who are uh, who have attended these matches that have been rooting for Djokovic's opponents. That is most definitely true. Uh, Berrettini got a lot of support in the first set. There's no doubt about that. Obviously, Holger Runa was kind of a, a different deal. You know, being 18, his first match ever. Uh, Novak was not booed in that match. He was never booed. The crowd was saying, Rune for Rune. So he was never booed. And, uh, you know, that was unfortunate that Novak was confused about that. I felt bad for Novak uh, because of that. But he was never being booed. And at the end of the day, uh, he is going to probably, as this tournament continues, he's going to continue to have um, some crowd with him and some crowd against him. Now, against Zverev, I want to say that it will be the most supportive crowd that he's had at the Open um, because I don't, I just, I don't know that Zverev is a character that is going to elicit as much passion as a Matteo Berrettini who I think, first of all, gets a lot of support for being Italian. Um, I also think, you know, some people might like him because he looks like a movie star. Uh, some people might like him because he wears his heart on his sleeve and, you know, competes incredibly incredibly hard, and he's an underdog. More, more so of an underdog than Zverev a little bit. So I don't know. I just think there's more. Berrettini might get a little bit more casual support. I also think that there are people, um, when they go to the semifinals, who are more, maybe a little bit more aware of um, of kind of the tennis uh, might be more passionate fans. Maybe not, but I think when what you got to understand about the U.S. Open is it's a cultural phenomenon where you have a lot of people who do not watch tennis who are going who are attending the U.S. Open. So you you might get people rooting against Novak because of literal, very trivial things. They don't know very much about Novak and they just are deciding to root against him for whatever reason. But the crowds have been pretty split. Um, you know, hopefully the crowds will be fair and that's kind of it, you know. I, I But obviously Zverev, in my opinion, you know, in my opinion, is not the most, is not a likable character. Um, in terms of like being a fan favorite, I don't, I mean, obviously you have the, uh, the allegations that, that are against him, um, can't help his PR, but I don't even think, I don't think it's just that. I do think that he has kind of a bit of a, my voice is going on me a little bit here. Um, 
you know, I just don't think he's extremely endearing when it comes to the fans. I mean, that's all. That's all. Um, I, I can't get into it much. But um, that's all. It'll be split. Um, he's been dealing with a split crowd. I do think Djokovic is going to get more uh, support than than usual um, in this semifinal. But we will see. We will see. I don't see any super chat here. Um, I do see chat revenue, though. Did I miss something? Top chat. Let me see. I don't know. Not sure. Hopefully, I didn't miss anything. Might just be donations. Thank you for anyone who donated. Appreciate that. Um, this will go up on audio platforms, by the way. Uh, I'm available on, on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave a review for me, it's a big help. That really helps me out. I'd appreciate that if you are a podcast listener. Um, <laughs> Daniil Medvedev. Um, sorry, someone in the comments making jokes. Um, if you're if you're a podcast listener, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and wherever you get your podcasts, this will go up on that. Um, if you miss some of it, obviously, like the video. Make sure to subscribe if you're not. Greatly appreciate it. And um, I will have more content for you as I recover from um, real exhaustion. But I will power through and uh, excited to continue to cover the end of this U.S. Open where uh, I return to YouTube. And I missed it very much, um, although it was a fantastic experience. I hope to be at the U.S. Open just like that every single year. With that being said... Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you next time.